we all, with unveiled faces, by beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory unto the next. And this is all done through his spirit. So let us do that just now. Let us, let us corporately as a community be transformed as we see the beauty and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That sounds a little strange to many of you. You're used to hearing Luke. We're going to take a bit of a scenic detour this morning. The Bible records and it, and it says that the words of God have the power to break the rocks of hearts into pieces. That the word of God has the power to cause the deer to give birth. That the word of God has the power to strip the forest bare and everyone in the temple cries out glory. That is the word of God that we are reading together this morning. So that being said, in 1 Samuel 17, hear the word of the Lord. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sukkot in Judah and camped between Sukkot and Azekah and Ephes Dami. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet, a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, the shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israel battle formations, why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them, am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, and Shammah, the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse, I told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Also take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Eli fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded it up, and set out as Jesse had charged him. 
He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to his battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers, how, how were they? While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forth from Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding this is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's older brother Eliab listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come here, he asked. Why did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down here to see the battle. What have I done now, protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to the others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, do not let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was a youth. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, rescued the lamb from his mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by his fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had put on his armor. David strapped his sword over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul, I'm not used to them. So David took them off instead. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his pouch, in his shepherd's bag. Then with the sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then curse David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. 
for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran, stood over him, grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from his sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah then rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sherim Road to Gath and to Ekron. The reading of God's holy word. I know some of y'all didn't do your Bible reading this week, which is why I read the majority of that text for you this morning. You're welcome. Let's pray together. Father, we give you glory and we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour, every sermon, every worship song, we need you. And it's the case even now. Be present, be pleased, O oh Lord, as you speak to us through your mighty and majestic word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If I had the sovereign ability to attach a spigot to the side of our heads and drain out all the stuff that has been poured into our heads about 1 Samuel 17 and Davy and Goliath, I would do just that. But I don't have that sovereign ability. So it is my prayer that as we make our way through this well-known text, and as we make our way through this treasure chest of jewels and God's word, that we would find the choicest jewel therein. And that is Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel 17, since it is a narrative, we will handle it like a narrative. And with any great narrative, you have a plot. And if I imagine with my spiritual imagination, if we were watching the trailer to this plot in the background, there would be music playing and the tagline of this plot would be, who can face the enemy? With any great narrative, any great plot, you also have characters. The first set of characters that we're introduced to, let's just call these characters the cowards. Standing there in all of their fine war attire, armor in hand, shaking in their skin, because the enemy that is before them is too great unless someone fights the battle for them. The next character we're gonna meet, with whom we're gonna go real familiar with in 1 Samuel 17, let's just call him the champion. Let's dive into the plot this morning. Did you notice how 1 Samuel 17 opens up? Did you see in verse 1 and verse 2? It says, the Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sukkot in Judah, and it camped between Sukkot and Azekah and Ephes Damim. Now I imagine if we hadn't heard this story a million times before we hit the age of five, what the writer of the scripture said would, would jump out at us. 
Keeping in mind that this is a narrative, we have to take note of what the writer is trying to get across in verse 1 and verse 2. Notice the location of this plot. The writer says this battle is taking place at Sukkot. Now, don't feel bad if you don't know where Sukkot is. I don't know where Sukkot is. But I don't think that's the important question that we're asking here. The writer sort of presumes our geographical ignorance, and so he wants us to be more concerned not about where Sukkot is, but about whose Sukkot is. Notice what he says there. He says Sukkot is in Judah. And since Sukkot is in Judah, and Judah belongs to the Lord, and Judah has no territory in which God has not given it, then we understand at the very beginning, folks, that this battle is going to take place on God's territory. Again, if we hadn't heard this a million times, we're reading this text and we're like, this is a done deal. This Philistine is going up against God and his armies and God has home field advantage? This is a done deal. And then we turn back just a few pages over to 1 Samuel 14, and we read about Saul and all his victories over the enemies of God, and wherever Saul went, he defeated the Ammonites, the Gibeonites, the Perizzites, and every other ite you can think of. Wherever Saul stepped foot, it tells us in 1 Samuel 14, he routed God's enemies. But as the writer of 1 Samuel goes on, we see Saul standing there with the armies of Israel, and that's all they're doing is just standing there. All of this, the people of God standing on God's territory with God backing them, and all they're doing is standing. If we can do a split screen at this point, over in this screen, you have Saul and all the armies of Israel looking at this giant shaking in their skin. But in this screen over here, it does sort of a flashback. It flashes back over to 1 Samuel 15. Now, if you don't remember what happened in 1 Samuel 15, God told Saul to destroy some land and Saul disobeyed. And the writer of Scripture tells us that Saul loved sacrifice more than obedience. And as a result, the Lord rejected Saul from being king and removed his spirit from him. Now flash back over to this scene. Here you have Saul. Here you have God's man. And the question that has to be asked then is, what happens when God's man attempts to do God's work without God's spirit. But what happens? So the assurance that we just felt a moment ago about this being on God's territory, we're sort of losing some of that assurance, aren't we? And again, if we hadn't heard this a thousand times, we'd be like, wait a minute, wait. Saul is rejected. How in the world is he going to stand up to this enemy? And if that wasn't enough to sort of cause you to lose your assurance in who's going to win this battle, the writer of Scripture goes to great detail of describing who this enemy is. 
And as he's describing this enemy, the, the sort of plot line comes again across the screen, and that is who can face this enemy? And like with every great plot line, there's a soundtrack that goes with it. And I imagine the soundtrack that is playing as Saul is rejected, as the enemy is standing there taunting God's people, I imagine the soundtrack that is playing is Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It raids for still our ancient foe, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And as we look at Saul, as we look at this enemy, we sort of cry out in the end part of that, of that verse and we say, Lord, where is your man? We need him. We need your man. Like any great narrative, it's sort of slowly and slowly building towards the climax. It's sort of slowly building this tension. Here you have the people of God facing an enemy of God that they cannot defeat by themselves. And then the writer says, oh, you want some more evidence that you can face the enemy by yourself. Look at the giant. Notice the details as the sort of the cameraman zooms in to Goliath and gets every detail of what this giant looks like. Did you notice how he describes him? Take note, whenever the Bible goes into great detail, the Bible is sort of screaming out to you like, I need your attention at this point. Whenever the Bible gives details, like, hey, take note. Notice this giant. He was six cubits in a span, which in our English measurement is simply, he was just shy of 10 feet tall. He had on a coat of armor and protective gear that weighed 125 pounds by itself. He had a spear, and just the head of the spear weighed 15 pounds. Listen, his armor by itself weighed more than most of the men that he would fight against. Now, I don't know about you, but if I go into the battle, and I see a brother standing before me and his armor weighs more than I weigh? It's a wrap, it's over. Not only that, but notice, he has a whole human being that's designated to carry his shield. Back in these days, the shield was designed to cover the entirety of the body. And so Goliath has a whole human being whose sole responsibility is to carry his shield. Can you imagine that? Hey, what are you going to do when you go to the battle? Oh, you know, I'm an archer. I'm going to shoot some arrows. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm a javelin thrower, whatever they call them. I'm going to throw some javelins. What are you doing? Oh, I'm a shield carrier. Is it, is it your own shield? No, nah, it's not my own shield. That's what Goliath has. Why the detail? Why the sort of zooming in and showing us all of this? Because I believe the writer of Scripture wants us to be in the position that as we look back at the Israelite camp, we're saying with them, this is no ordinary enemy. With every detail, we sort of come back to that vulnerable position and saying to ourselves, we, 
this is impossible. He's 10 feet tall. There's, there's no way we can win. He has a, a spear that the head of it weighs 15 pounds. We're, we're doomed. He has a whole man carrying his shield. There's, there's no way we can face this guy. And saints, when we're in that position, when we're in a position of ultimate vulnerability, when we're saying with the Israelites, Lord, we can't face the enemy. The writer has us right where he wants us. The writer describes this man this way because he wants us to scream out with the Israelites, Lord, where is your man? We need someone else to fight this battle for us. We are cowards. Enter stage left. The cowards. Ryder then sort of pans out from every detail of this giant man called Goliath, and he shows us the entirety of Israel's army. And as we look at the entirety of Israel's army, what we're drawn to is the fact that they have fear written all over them. Notice what it says in verse 8 as we hear a voice from the background. Said he stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out and line up in battle formation? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. All along, we've been crying out, Lord, where is your man? Now the, the enemy of God has the audacity to stand on God's territory and proclaim, yeah, send that man to me. But notice, we're no longer just asking for a man any longer. We're asking for a representative. We're asking for one who's going to carry on his shoulders the entire army of Israel. We're asking for a representative because whatever happens to this man happens to all of Israel. If this man steps in the battle and he is defeated, all of the people of God are defeated. But oh, if he steps into this battle and he's victorious, all of the people of God are victorious. Where is that man? Surely it's not the cowards. Did you notice in verse 11? Did you notice what they're doing as the enemy is taunting God's people? When Saul and all of Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Then over in verse 24, when all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified, fear on the faces of those who should fear nothing because God is on their side. If we had the ability to sort of Photoshop our faces onto the faces of the Israelite army, I imagine that it wouldn't look too much different than how our faces look. Standing before an enemy, crying out, vulnerable, that we can't do this. We need someone else to fight this battle for us. Let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. 
you and I, we don't enter the scene when David enters the scene. You and I, we're already at the battlefield. We don't come into the story when David does. You and I are the cowards. We're standing there before the enemy of God, and we're helpless. We're hopeless unless God sends someone to fight for us. But wait, Pastor Stephen, that's not how the story goes. I'm David in the story. I defeat the enemy all by myself. No, brothers and sisters, our shoulders are not broad enough to be the representative of all of God's people. Our shoulders are not strong enough to represent and to carry on them the entirety of the people of God. There's only one man who can do that. So we cry out, Lord, where is that man? One man. One man. One man. What happens to him happens to everybody else. If he wins, they win. But if he loses, they're lost. And notice what keeps happening here. It records in verse 16 that for 40 days and 40 nights, the Philistine did what he did. And that's came out and taunted the armies of the living God. 40 days and 40 nights. Y'all, I get tired after 40 seconds of irritation. I imagine that irritation alone would have driven me, even though I knew I was gonna lose, to fight this enemy just to shut him up. I can't eat, I can't sleep, because every day and every night, he's coming out there screaming, waking up all the kids. I don't know if they had kids on a battlefield, but I'm sort of trying to transport myself back into that time. Waking up all my kids, irritation alone would have driven me to fight this guy. You ever asked questions of the text when you're reading? I think we should. As you're reading God's Word, I think it's helpful to ask questions of God's Word. Like, here's a question that I asked when I read 1 Samuel 17. Why in the world did Goliath not, after he saw the fear and chaos that he brought upon an entire army of God, why didn't he, at day 25, say, you know what, I'm tired of all this taunting, words ain't enough for y'all, I'ma just fight y'all by myself because obviously you're scared. Why didn't that happen? Why didn't at day 30, he said, you know what, talking's not enough. I see you guys are scared. Every time I raise my head, you guys are running away. I'm gonna defeat you myself. One commentator asked and answered that very question. He says, surely, Surely the Lord overruled the desire of this giant and somehow or other overruled his mind to restrain him from attacking Israel. Otherwise, he and his army at his heels would not have been satisfied with mere threats for 40 days, but would have wanted something more. Notice how he concludes. The Lord restrained the enemy until a savior could come. Oh, brothers and sisters, have you never been in that position? 
Have you never been in that position where you thought all hope was lost unless God intervened? Have you never been in that position where you're like, I am completely helpless at a time in which you thought you were utterly defeated and then God reaches down from heaven and intervenes at a moment when you thought you were hopeless and gives you all hope? Have you ever felt that? But I'm getting ahead of myself because we haven't even met the champion yet. Inner stage right, the champion. Continuing with the flow of the narrative, the tension is at its highest point. The enemy has taunted God's people for days upon days and at a point when it seems like all hope was lost and at a point when it seems better for Israel just to sell themselves into slavery, the champion steps on the scene. Again, Let's do a split screen real quickly. Over here we have Goliath, just shy of 10 feet tall, wearing all this fancy armor. And then over here, we have this shepherd boy, tending sheep. And again, I imagine if we hadn't heard this story as we're reading the story a thousand times, like, oh, that's, that's just Davy. Davy's gonna go to the battlefield. If we hadn't heard this story, we're like, no, there's no way that this guy beats this guy. There's no way that this frail, and as the scripture says, young, healthy, and handsome. That's like a negative in the scripture. I don't know how that became a positive in our culture, but it's like a negative in the scripture. How that guy is going to defeat this guy. But at the right time, at the right time, Jesse sends his son to the battlefield. And notice as the, the writer goes on at the height of the battle, he records for us again that for 40 days and for 40 nights, this Philistine did what he usually does. And that in Hebrew literature, when you see the word 40, it means that destruction is coming. Destruction is inevitable. And when destruction was inevitable at the right time, the champion ran to the battlefield. David made his way down to the camp, and it only takes a moment, takes a moment for this champion to hear and then start asking questions. And it's interesting, as we're reading 1 Samuel 17, again, take note how the writer writes. Notice how he describes Goliath. Whenever he's talking about Goliath from the perspective of, of Israel and Saul, he gives him a name calls him Goliath. But when the champion steps on the field, whenever David talks about this guy, he simply calls him the Philistine. When the champion is on the field, David's like, he doesn't get the privilege of a name. He's just another enemy of God that God can destroy quickly. Let me draw a bridge from then to today. Whose perspective do you have? Is it that of the cowards or is it that of the champion? Looking at it through God's man that when he steps on the scene, oh, the enemy is but moments from being defeated. Notice what happens here. 
I love when David accepts the challenge. Then in verses 38 through 40, Saul, the rejected king, tries to give David some armor. That's hilarious. You're rejected. God has removed your spirit. Your armor is of the world. And now you're trying to give it to this man to go fight this enemy. And David responds appropriately. I'm not used to that. I can't walk in that. I'm content with what God has made alone. Notice what David chooses for his weaponry. He chooses a stone from the brook, one that no human hand had touched or fashioned or shaped. And that's the best thing because this champion is not gonna wage war like those of the world does. This champion fights in a different fashion because he reminds us in verse 45, and we can't be reminded enough. David said to the Philistine, you, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the kings of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. And I love how the story continues because in verse 48 and 49, you have to just laugh to yourself because after all of this preparation, after all of this anticipation, all of this excitement, like, oh, this is about to be the, the greatest battle we've ever seen. This is about to be epic. David's going to charge out there. They're going to exchange blows. Maybe like in like comic book heroes, David is going to fall. He's going to get back up and he's going to be victorious. Oh, there's so much anticipation. Then you get to verse 48 and 49 and the battle is over in like 10 seconds. This is like the ending of the worst movie that you can ever watch. All the excitement and then it ends like this. David ran quickly to the battlefield. He got there, threw a stone, story over. Isn't that amazing? The taunting lasted a long time. But when the champion steps on the field, it's but a moment before the enemy of God is defeated. When the champion steps on the field, saints, we have to understand the battle won't be long. All of Scripture has been sort of crying out, and we cry out with all of Scripture like, Lord, where is your man? We're facing a giant that we cannot defeat on our own. We need somebody else to fight this enemy for us. We've seen this enemy. We know him personally. This enemy has turned worshipers into idolaters. This enemy has turned men and women into murderers and adulterers. And with every time the scripture records a sin for us in scripture, we stand back and we say, Lord, this is too much for us. Our heart is wicked. We, we, we can't defeat this enemy on our own. This is, this is too much for us. From Genesis until Christ steps on the scene, we're crying out with Scripture like, Lord, please send your man. And then it got to a point where we're hopeless. And then the Bible records for us, at the fullness of time, God sent his son to the battlefield. 
And not only did Christ walk to the battle lines, the scripture records as the greater David that he ran to the battle lines and it took just a second to free all of God's people. Some of you have been saved. You say, you know, I just got saved five years ago. I was living in the world for about 35 years. But imagine that for a moment. You were under the rule of the prince of the power of air for 30-something years. And then with a gospel presentation, your whole life changed. Brothers and sisters, when the champion comes, it doesn't take long. And this champion is indeed our representative. Whatever happens to him, it happens to us. If he is defeated, we have no hope. But if he is victorious, you and I are victorious. Spoiler alert, Christ is victorious. And our Savior doesn't wage war like the weapons of this world. You remember that account in John when Christ steps on the scene and his disciples got all anxious. One of them pulled out a knife and cut off the soldier's ear. And Christ was like, whoa, if my kingdom was of this world, I would have told you to fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. I don't wage war like the kingdom of this world does. I'm going to defeat death by dying. What kind of craziness is that? And as we look at David, Pastor Nathan, he flew over this morning to the Valley of Elah and he brought back a stone from the river there. This is, this is truly from the Valley of Elah. He didn't fly over this morning. He didn't like jump into the flux capacitor, but he did allow me to use this for an illustration. This is what David used to defeat the enemy. You can't look at this and then come to a natural conclusion. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> 10 feet tall, yeah, that's, that's perfect. The whole man carrying the shield, that, 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 that makes sense. Neither can we look at Christ, the one born of a woman, born under a law, beaten, ridiculed, hung upon the cross, nor can we look at him and say, ah, that makes sense. His disciples didn't even get it. When are you going to bring your kingdom? And Lord is like, I'm bringing it, but I have to die for the sins of my people. And understand, saints, as Christ hung on the cross of Calvary, as we're watching this battle unfold, we're saying, Lord, whatever happens to him happens to us. <laughs> and three days later, our champion rolls from the grave, defeated, crushed the head of that enemy whom we could not face on our own. Just as death came through one man, so also resurrection comes through one man. And just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So you see, saints, you and I, we can't be David. We don't have the ability to carry this weight upon our shoulders, but the God-man does. Jesus Christ has the ability to carry all of the sins of all of God's people for all time upon his shoulders. And when he dies, he leaves them in the grave. 
And so we hear that song that is the soundtrack of this story playing again in our minds. God, where is your man? And then the words of Martin Luther come back in our mind. Thus, ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, say by us his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. I love how the text ends there in 1 Samuel 17. Did you notice that in verse 52? Then the men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Then, after the battle was over, all of a sudden they want to get courageous? That's us. Because the champion has a way of turning cowards into the courageous. The champion has a way of turning the weak into warriors. So now Saint says, Christ has reigned and he is victorious and he has crushed the head of the serpents. What do we do? Oh, now you and I, we can step on the battlefield because you know what? What happened to him happens to us and he is victorious. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, say by his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Would you pray with me? Indeed, Lord, you are victorious. And because you have won, oh Lord, we win. Oh, grave, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Oh, victorious one. Oh, champion. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Stand with us as we sing.